Hey, everybody. Welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor Clifford. This is Mark Gagné. How are you feeling today, Mark? I feel like Jeremiah Johnson right now with my beard and being overdue for a haircut. How are you feeling? Okay. Uh, I feel like a digital hermit. I think what you said last time made a lot of sense to me, where reality is only in 2D right now. Yeah. Um, tell me again what who do you feel like i don't even know who that person is Jer- oh Jer- yeah if you haven't seen Jer- if you haven't seen jeremiah johnson you've seen the gif from it it's robert redford with the beard oh yeah he's that's just that's smiling. he's just the yeah, yeah yeah so that is an interesting movie it's like you know it's got a lot of cool scenes and landscapes of like utah and colorado and all that but it, I watched it after, you know, seeing the, the GIF like a million times on the internet and seeing the GIF like that, that five second clip in the context mm. of the movie is makes it so funny. Yeah, like, sure. I mean, it's like one of those things where you're just going along and then you're like, oh, my God, like, it's like <laughs> such a well-known thing. Yeah, because it's him and it's like a montage where he's like showing his adopted family pretty much how to like survive and everything and so that's like yeah that's their first moment where like his his like wife his uh native american wife like catches a fish and like his (laughs) his son or whatever and you just like that that's as like emphatic as he gets in the whole movie like (laughs) that that nice smile and nod (laughs) yeah i can imagine that coming up and just shocking the hell out of you uh similar uh, my wife had never seen Mean Girls, so even though it's like not a central viewing or anything, it's sort of like, oh, you haven't seen Mean Girls, and it's like you, you know, it's that one meme, you know, get in, loser, we're going shopping or whatever, and it's like, yeah, just that like five second thing, it's like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> throws you off. What have you? What are the? What's the biggest like movie that you haven't seen? Popular movie. Hmm. A popular movie that I haven't seen. I mean, that's hard because I went to film school. So I know. they like inundate you. I guess I've been inundated with all the like supposedly important movies. I've never seen The Godfather Part 3. I've only seen one and two. Okay. Um, there's some other ones. There's definitely some other ones that I haven't seen. Like I, I haven't seen uh, E.T., like front to back. What? Yeah, that's like yeah. That's you should definitely, one. you know, you should make an event of that. Make some popcorn or something. Yeah, yeah. and then like uh, my girlfriend's never seen Star Wars. Like any all of three. Them. Yeah. My wife hadn't seen the original until I was like, let's just watch the trilogy so that you can like, you know, again that whole thing of like once you see the trilogy, it's like oh like you've missed like so many references that I think it's interesting that it probably just glazed over either in TV or movies where it's like, everyone knows that because everyone knows star Wars. And it's like, not everyone. Yeah. It's a touchstone. Yeah, definitely a touchstone. Well, that we're kind of covering those books, you know, in this podcast, like, Oh, you haven't fucking read that. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's just, but books are like way too, there's way too many. And that's more of an ask. I feel like, Having read a book is much more of a of an ask than having seen a movie. You know, not every movie takes ten hours to for sure. Yeah, to... or, or longer. <laughs> you ever think about that though? Like when like a book is actually the collective time of a book 
is actually not that long. Um, if you were able to sit down and read a book cover to cover, like, you know, uh, no distractions. If, yeah. Yeah. If you read a page a minute or like just slightly under that, depending on the density of the material, it's like really, you know, like a 120 page book should be like a two hour movie or somewhere like that. Two and a half hours, maybe three. Yeah. Um, if you could, if you could read consistently like that, you know, like in the same, just keep I the guess same probably, You You can probably set the Kindle to tell you how long it took you to read a book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, it'll tell you. It it like uh, whatever adapts to your to your reading speed huh? for a given book. Yeah, yeah. that's always interesting because you know you look at a thousand page book and it's just like no, it's going to take forever. And it's like, well, the reality is when it's all put together, it's probably like you know, how much yeah. time did you spend watching Game of Thrones or whatever? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Playing video games, my gosh, the time just disappears. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> So what else have you been up to? And it's quarantine. We're on week five, week six, week five, something. week six. I feel like I'm, I've been relatively busy and still working and stuff. So I feel like I'm counting the days less than some other people, you know, people will, you know, I'll see updates on online or like just from talking to friends and it's like, yeah, man, day 38 or like, you know, week five or whatever. And I'm like, I just don't even know. I guess I'm not, not keeping you know i'm not xing off a calendar like some of my friends in new york which you know for obvious reasons new york is a little bit of a different situation right now yeah uh can't really get in the headspace to imagine what that would be like but i feel like some of them are you know like like a calendar like in you know the classic like cartoon in prison mm -hmm. <laughs> xing off the days i know just like hard to get outside you know get sunlight and uh, fresh air and all that like mm. just feel cooped up lucky Actually, i got out it was interesting something uh this past weekend we were able to i don't know how this is like allowed or what the deal is around it or anything like that but it did feel really safe the la arboretum and botanical garden is still open and basically they just don't have you like go through any checkpoints or like really check your tickets like hardcore. You just, you just have to schedule a time and they, you basically just walk from the parking lot into the botanical garden and they only let a certain amount of people in every day. So okay. it's basically like contactless ultra delivery of nature. There's like peacocks like running around, <laughs> like you know, ducks and turtles and stuff. It's, it's pretty cool. Nice. Yeah. But still wearing masks. And here, the past week, it's been in the 80s and 90s. So oh. it's aging <laughs> hot. And yeah, we haven't had that yet. Yeah. I don't know. You saw some real animals, though, but I'm still playing Animal Crossing. Mm -hmm. which is, uh, I don't know. A little bit more natural. Yeah. How's your island doing? I I've decided to make it sort of like my job where I'm, I'm putting up solar panels and wind turbines <laughs> on my, my on my island to make it sustainable fake sustainable you're just reliving your your days as an electrical engineer digitally yeah i get that i get that sometimes you know video editing takes a lot of organization and then sometimes i'm like you know playing a game or doing something supposedly fun and i'm like i need to organize my 
menus and my <laughs> my my fake inventory and stuff like that. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Life uh, imitates art, or art imitates life. Both. Both. <laughs> Speaking of life imitating art, obviously we, uh, you know, I can just segue that into the coverage of my book if you're ready. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so this is episode 54. That means I'm going first. And I am sad to say that as per our previous conversations, I didn't read like almost anything <laughs> this past week. Uh, so so this isn't the trilogy? This is not the, I did not do the complete trilogy of Lost Illusions in three weeks, which would have been awesome. But so the, for the past two episodes, I've covered the different, how the different novels of like Balzac's Lost Illusions came out, you know, in order in a trilogy. I'm still reading the third one. So I decided to go into my back catalog. And I feel like I've talked about this on a podcast multiple times where it's like, I didn't realize which authors I would cover twice. You know, I did Alex yeah. Smith twice, which was weird. And I did, um, you know, who else? The, the, uh, Never Let Me Go. Who's that guy? Ishiguro. Ishiguro. Yeah, I did him a bunch of times. And Ishiguro. then, I, you know, I'm always just saying I need to do more of the authors that I'm actually, actually obsessed with. So reaching back into my back catalog today, I'm doing the 1956 novel, The Temple of the Golden Pavilion by Yukio Mishima. Um, and there's a lot of interesting stuff around this book. I mean, obviously, I've in the podcast mentioned Mishima many times uh, for a quick review of anyone who hasn't heard those episodes. Mishima is a crazy author. He's a right wing kind of like nut job and he committed suicide in an extremely spectacular way in 1970 by attempting to take over a government building and then committing ritual suicide with a bunch of students that he had convinced were, you know, like martyrs to his cause. Um, so, so I have a copy of that. I'm going to go grab it really quick. I know right where it is. So keep Temple going. Of the Golden Pavilion? <laughs> yeah, I have it. Hold oh, on. okay. I want to hear about your edition because mine right. is pretty interesting. Be right back. So while Mark is going to grab that book, um, you know, my introduction to Mishima was through the movie by Paul Schrader, which is just Mishima, Life in Four Chapters. And that's funny. He, I knew I knew right where it was. Yeah, <laughs> I'm still giving our listeners a little I'm filling them in about the Paul Schrader movie, um, which is Mishima Life in Four Chapters. But uh, part of that movie, which is an excellent movie, is that scenes from what he did was he stole he told the story of Mishima's last day in the movie. But then he also adapted bits and pieces of four of his major works, one of which is the Temple of the Golden Pavilion. So what is your edition like, Mark? Uh, mine is the it's the Vintage International, which I okay. I tend to like. Yeah, their books. I can I can picture like the cover. I think I've seen in my research. I think I saw. Is it like a picture of just like a young Japanese kid? Uh, no, it's like a red tinted kind of uh, this naked man, I guess, like <laughs> crouched over, holding like his head, made doing oh. some kind of pose like that. And then there's like a dragon on the front in gold. Cool. Um, yeah, so Temple of the Golden Pavilion is one, an amazing book. It comes out in 1956, which is six years after, or seven years after Confessions of a Mask, which I did as the very first episode of this glorious podcast. And um, 
Temple of the Golden Pavilion definitely feels very like mature um, Mishima. Like I feel like at this point he knows what his writing is about and is very like intense about it. Very cool. And um, it's very dense philosophically and psychologically, which is, you know, the reason why we're reading Mishima is to just get into these like dense kind of philosophical and moral debates about art and beauty and all these crazy things. Um, but so what, to what's really interesting about the Temple of the Golden Pavilion is that as far as I, I mean, I think, you know, Mishima wrote so much that this probably isn't true, but it's probably more rare than not that this is based off of an historical event. So not all of his novels are based on, like, you know, there might be touch points and stuff, but the this is like, there's a literal historical event um, where, you know, there's a building in Japan called the... And of course, I'm going to butcher everything here, so I don't even want to hear it. But uh, <laughs> the the temple is called Kinkaku-ji in Kyoto, Kyoto, and it means the golden, you know, like the golden pavilion. Yeah, I see it. I see it uh, in my in the introduction to this book. Right. So this is based off of like a literal thing where in 1950, which is when Mishima is 25 years old, he's already published. Confessions of a Mask. So he published that first book when he was 24, the bastard. And sure. when he's 25, this event shocks the world where in 19, or in the Japanese world, where in 1950, there's like a young Buddhist monk who burns down Kinkaku-ji, which is like this amazing, like, it's one of those buildings, like, you know how sometimes you'll hear about buildings where it's like, it had survived so much. Like there were like wars, you know, in like the 1400s and like all these different like empire regime changes and stuff like that, where this one building had like, like even the complex itself that it was a part of was burned to the ground, like except yeah. this one thing. So it was very sort of like, this is a holy place. This is like revered. It was, it's like on a list of national treasures, historical sites, like in Japan, even in 1950. And then this young, like, Buddhist acolyte, like, he's, like, a study, he's, like, studying there and, like, has duties there and everything, and he just burns it down. And his plan was to commit suicide while, like, just sitting inside of the burning temple, but in reality, he sort of, like, chickens out at the last minute and runs away and then tries to kill himself later, but then he's eventually arrested. So it's, like, all these, like, crazy things, but, you know, all these crazy things are happening, and Mishima is 25, like, a budding, like, novelist and being, like, I could definitely, you know, write that. The thing that's interesting that, like, I started to get, like, I'm, like, wow, this is, like, so insane, and I wanted to do it for the podcast as I was revisiting just stuff that I would be able to talk about is um you know my edition of the book is published by avon and is you know the original is like a knob for something like that but what's interesting about my edition is that it's like it's the perfect paperback it's one of those old like crinkly paperbacks that smells you know perfect you know old yellowed pages and the edition itself is actually kind of funny. Like on the back of the, I'll read the back of the novel and they almost try to sensationalize it like beyond, you know, Mishima is like a very philosophical, like, you know, writer, but I feel like this, the back of this cover gives a wrong impression, but I'll, I'll read it. It says, 
he was obsessed by a vision of beauty, the shimmering golden temple, more fascinating than a woman and more internal than love. And because he was ugly, evil, impotent, he determined someday to possess it by destruction. <laughs> so that, that was the back of yours? Yeah. All right, let me read the back of mine. Okay. <laughs> because of the boyhood trauma of seeing his mother make love to another man in the presence of his dying father, mm -hmm. Mizuguchi becomes a hopeless stutterer. Taunted by his schoolmates, he feels utterly alone until he becomes an acolyte at a famous temple in Kyoto. He quickly becomes obsessed with the beauty of the temple. Even when tempted by a friend into exploring the geisha district, he cannot escape its image. In the novel Soaring Climax, he tries desperately to free himself from his fixation. Nice. Yeah. Who does it? Which one is better at some? <laughs> well, yours is better at summarizing, but also like something to like go into is that, you know, yours, first of all, I'm glad that it gave some of those plot points. So yeah, like Mizuguchi is like this guy is like the main character. He's a stutterer, very like pretty much goes with the theme of a lot of Mishima's main characters that he's not the most lovable person and he's extremely flawed, you know, with the idea that you know, from the very beginning, you see like a few things like, oh, someone makes fun of him in school and then he goes and like sabotages all of their stuff. You know, he's like, yeah. he's a very flawed person where it's like, so, you know, Mishima's building in the backstory of someone who not only was, you know, a real life kind of like criminal that Japan, you know, saw this happen, like, like, like you know, he's trying to explain childhood events. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because your edition would have been summarized, read, you know, everything post-1970 when Mishima commits his spectacular suicide. And what's crazy about mine is that it has an introduction um, by a woman named, let me see, it says right at the end, Nancy Wilson Ross. And it's about a 20 page introduction that focuses on sort of like, you know, the backstory of the burning of Kinkaku Ji, like in 1950. But it's this, it's a type of, it's a, it's a thing of writing that you really wouldn't be able to get a hold on today because it's pre crazy Mishima suicide, you know, like now oh. it's more revealed, like, okay, like what were his feelings about, when he was 25 and there was like this Buddhist monk who destroyed this temple and literally in the guy's trial, like in the trial of like this, like, you know, the pub, the very public trial, he's literally like espousing Mishima's ideas, you know, like we're used to it now that like, oh, there's like this crazy Japanese guy, like novelist who was famous and he killed himself and he was all obsessed with like death and beauty and like blah, blah, blah and all this stuff. But think about it, like, she was writing this introduction before anything of that happened, and she's describing the trial of the young guy who was the real person who built, who burned the building down. And he says, he said in his trial, first of all, he, he was a stutterer, like, for real. So, you know, Mishima took that directly from life. And the kid in the trial said, I hate myself, my evil, ugly, stammering self. And yet he also said that he not, did not in any way regret having burned down the temple. A report of the trial, an explanation of his conduct, stated that because of his self, quote, self-hate and self-detestation, he hated anything beautiful, and he could not help always feeling a strong, destructive desire for hurting and destroying anything that was beautiful. So it's like, 
you know, and this woman begins the introduction to this book by being like, the Temple of the Golden Pavilion is the fourth book to be published in America by Mishima, the most gifted, famous, and prolific young Japanese writer who at 32 already has some 50 volumes of work. And, you know, less than 10 who's, years later, he's going to... never done anything wrong. Yeah, who's never done anything wrong. Like, he's just, he's he's fascinated by, like, you know, dark psychologies and stuff like that. And it's like, oh my God, like, it's like taking it out of the context that, like, clearly he saw this whole thing play out in 1950. And he was like, hey, I hate beautiful things, too. I, like, you know, like, <laughs> I, like, believe that beauty is, like, the hallmark of, like, you know, as as when something is beautiful, it should die young and be destroyed. <laughs> um so it's it's really fascinating. It's really interesting to to have like this edition, which I'm so glad that I have now that I'm picking apart for the podcast. Um, but besides that point, to go into some plot points, you know, Mizuguchi, he's the stutterer. He eventually befriends this other guy, Kashigawa, who has a club foot. And they have like an interesting relationship because it's like, oh, you know, I have no confidence. I have like a stutter, you know, women, they're not attracted to me. And then his friend Kashigawa is like, well, actually you can make your you know, your imperfections kind of part of, like, your allure. Like, his friend Kashigawa, even though he has this, like, gross, like, club foot, is actually rather successful with women because he makes people feel bad for him. And But he's very much in the same nature of Mizuguchi. Like, that's how they kind of find each other, that he's, like, this guy who's, like, sort of manipulative in his, like, pathetic nature. Mm-hmm. Um. But what's interesting, too, again, Mishima in, like, true, like, ultimate Mishima form, before I was, you know, preparing for the podcast in true shitty book report, you know, finesse, I was, like, only, like, preparing for this, like, 30 minutes before we started recording. I just brought this book with me today. And it's, like, I can literally open to any page, and it will be some, like, really cool kind of interesting, you know, little paragraph or page or dialogue of some of his like philosophical wanderings. Like I literally, I just flipped open, you know, 15 minutes ago to page 121 and here's Kashigawa. He likes to do like long, like philosophical diatribes in the book. And here's Kashigawa just saying something so pure Mishima, but also just keep in context everything that I've already said about like that, like monk who burned the thing down and how Mishima killed himself and everything. And here's Kashigawa saying, how do you suppose they managed to keep peace and order during the war if it wasn't by sta- staging public executions of violent death? The reason they stopped having public execution was, I gather, because they were afraid it would make people bloodthirsty. Damn stupid, if you ask me. The people who clear w- cleared away the bodies after the air raids all had gentle, gentle, cheerful expressions. To see human beings in agony, to see them covered in blood, and to hear their death groans, it makes people humble. It makes their spirits delicate, bright, and peaceful. It's never at such times that we become cruel or bloodthirsty. No, it's on a beautiful afternoon like this that people suddenly become cruel. It's at a moment like this, don't you think? While one's vaguely watching the sun as it peeps through the leaves of the trees above a well-mown lawn, every possible nightmare in the world, every possible nightmare in history has come into being like this. But as one sits there in the clear daylight, it's the idea of bloodstained figures fainting in agony that gives a clear outline to the nightmare and that helps to materialize the dream into reality. The nightmare is no longer our own agony, but the violent physical suffering of other people. And we are not obliged to feel the pain of others. Ah, what a relief that is. So it's like, dude, Mishima, you are like, you know, there's no context, but at the same time, it's so insane that someone could write an introduction to this book being like not knowing what's to come. 
you know? <laughs> um, you know, another paragraph just randomly flipped through. Here's the first person narrative voice of Mizuguchi. He says, I have ar- as I have already explained, the fact of not being understood by others had been my sole source of pride since my early youth, and I had not the slightest impulse to express myself in such a way that I might be understood. When I did try to clarify my thoughts and actions, I did so with no consideration whatsoever. I do not know whether or not this was because I wanted to understand myself. Such a motive is in accord with a person's real character and comes automatically to form a bridge between himself and others. The intoxication that I derived from the Golden Temple served to make part of my personality opaque and because this intoxication deprived me of all other forms of intoxication I was obliged to resist it by making a deliberate effort to preserve the clear parts of my personality I do not know about others but in my own case the clarity itself was I and conversely it was not a case of my being the owner so even though that was like kind of like abstracted from all the other stuff around it it's like this young monk starts working at the golden temple and his obsession with it is what starts to kind of like there's really good passages where it's like he doesn't know if he admires the beauty of the temple or if he admires the opportunity to control that beauty through destroying it and in my research for the podcast i also found some really cool book reviews like one of them um was is by uh jessica schneider blogcritics.org i found it on like some seattle you know website or whatever and she said something really cool it's like the novel is so philosophically rich that there are many angles one can approach when examining it is it a mere meditation on beauty and how it relates to humans and art or is it mortal or is mortal man more than that and his destructive power as he's able to eradicate something from existence just by a single fire on the other hand these arguments question uh, the arguments question time and ask is everything merely built around it including the beauty we see and the humans that fill our lives and what's our relation to it so it's like you know machine is just awesome he is like sick and twisted and like i think now through the lens of history it's a little bit easier to just like admire him like i don't know if it's like an admirable thing to admire someone who was like so deeply psychotic <laughs> um but you know this like awesome power like another review was um this is in the japan times it says yukio's mishima's imaginative reconstruction of the case of the pathology of misaguchi the main character in account raises disturbing questions about emotional dependency alienation the value of art and heritage and the role childhood experiences and traumas play in warping adult behavior because there's also a lot of really crazy scenes in this book like the main character and his best friend from childhood like they see this like weird thing like there's all these weird things in this book like they see um a geisha who milks uh like one of her customers tea like from her own breast and it's like bizarre and weird and like mishima like picks apart like what like a childhood imagine like seeing that could possibly mean and like where does that come from in his life and then there's a whole melodrama there's a lot of melodrama in this book where it's like you know there's like a superior of the temple who the who Michiga, uh, Mizoguchi knows is like visiting geishas and prostitutes and stuff like that. So he manipulates him by like leaving weird pictures like in his like room and stuff like that. And like there's all this like melodramatic stuff. But it, at the core of it, it's like just these philosophical wonderings about like who people really are and like what art and beauty really is if it can be destroyed so easily. Or not so easily, like, you know, 
what is the mental burden of like destroying something versus appreciating it? And is there some sort of sick and like twisted like appreciation through destruction? And it's just really fascinating that the world at one time would see Mishima as anything but that person who died in such a disturbing and spectacular way. Um, so yeah, obviously I would recommend the temple, the temple of the golden pavilion. Like it's like a super good book. And I think it also is a very good, have you read any Mishima Mark? Not yet. No. I'm so like accumulating. Yeah. You're accumulating because <laughs> you know, I'm obsessed with him. But, like, I honestly think that the, the, the Temple of the Gold, like, childhood, I mean, Confessions of a Mask is definitely, like, a tour de force of, like, an introductory novel that's, like, crazy good and a good introduction. But maybe, like, as, you know, one of those mid-career, like, definitely super strong, knows his own style books, like, Temple of the Golden Pavilion would definitely be a good, like, just read this and you'll know what Mishima is about. Like, he's awesome. And, um... It's a good introduction to his work, I would say. Um, but yeah, uh, I will just go, now that I've talked about Temple of the Golden Pavilion for 30 minutes straight, I will go into my one-star review. Interesting analysis of Goodreads one-star reviews. Only 155 and a little bit over 11,000 reviews were one star, so that's about 1.3% <laughs> of people gave it one star. So that's, uh, you know, positive to Mishima's writing style. Um, and Phil, F-I-L, no P-H, just Phil, <laughs> says, this was brutal to read and contemplate. I can't decide on who's the biggest asshole, Misoguchi or Mishima himself. Difficult to believe this is the author of the excellent The Sailor Who Fell from Grace from the Sea. Mishima was a lunatic with crazy, crazy ideas, but who cares, right? He acted on those thoughts, though, and in the dumbest way possible. Delusions of grandeur or just delusional? Just like Mizoguchi. And Phil says that that's worthy of a one-star review. I would say that that's worthy of a five-plus-star review <laughs> um, because that that's just so crazy Like that a novelist would like take this international phenomenon and write a fictional account of it and be praised for it. Like, wow, you're amazing. Like you can assume the psychologies of all these people. And then really like well, behind it all, it's like, yeah, I have these crazy thoughts and ideas too. And you're about to see why. <laughs> um, it's like and, if Capote was a like serial killer. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. It's exactly like that. It's like, you know, if, you know, think of any great like epic novel, like something about like a fictionalizing of history or, you know, yeah. I mean, it's like if Stephen King was a murderer, it's like, oh, yeah. like, all this time. Stephen we never King, could have seen it. Yeah. Clown, you know, and it's just insane. So, you know, kudos to Mishima, kudos to everyone who was praising him for totally not being a psycho, just a brilliant genius. Have you read that other book that Phil mentioned? The Sailor Who Fell from Grace from the Sea? Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's like um, people would probably, in the same way that people recommend like The Crying of Lot 49 is the first pinch-in, it's because it's like the shortest one. Ah, uh, yeah, I hate you know, that. It's like, it's like, oh, like it's a good intro because it's 15 pages. No, it's like actually like 100 pages or something. It's still pretty good. Uh, from what I remember, The Sailor Who Fell from Grace from the Sea has like the famous like there's a famous scene in that where the where the main protagonist jerks off to a picture of Saint Sebastian, you know, that saint who's pierced with all the arrows. Yeah. Yeah. 
there's like a famous scene like that. And I think pretty sure Mishima that comes like ripped from the pages of his own life because he was a tortured homosexual. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's not a bad book, Sailor Who Fall from Grace from the Sea, but I wouldn't be like, why was that good? And this was crap. I mean, Phil, you're just out of your mind. So <laughs> yeah, uh, Temple of the Golden Pavilion, really fascinating, really nice. I have no excuse. It's right here in front of me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it could only take you probably two hours total, so I don't know what your excuse is. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, mine is uh, 250 pages. Yeah, there you go. So, you know, three hours. Come on. It's interesting. Uh, actually, I just picked up on this here. So the also on the back is a quote from The Nation hmm. uh, magazine or whatever. It says, beautifully translated, Mishima re-erects Kyoto plain and mountain, monastery, temple, town, as Victor Hugo made Paris out of Notre Dame, Notre Dame, mm-hmm. however you say it. And Notre Dame caught fire, what, last year or two years ago? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Fires Maybe, uh, beautiful places. Yeah. Maybe there's Sim- a connection. Similar kind of story, yeah. Although that was like some construction error or something. It wasn't some... Uh, Boring. Acolyte, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the truth will come out one day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to start mine. So the, the book that I read this week starts with a quote from Proust. Ooh. Uh, and I think that's called an epigraph. If they have a quote at the beginning. Stephen King loves doing that. Yeah. A lot of people love doing that. Let me read that here. There's two two different quotes here. Poets claim that we recapture for a moment the self that we were long ago when we enter some house or garden in which we used to live in our youth. But these are most hazardous pilgrimages, which end as which end as often in disappointment as in success. It is in ourselves that we should rather seek to find those fixed places contemporaneous with different years. And then the next one is. The unknown element in the lives of other people is like that of nature, which each fresh scientific discovery merely reduces but does not abolish. Are both of those Proust? Yes. The They're first both. one is the first one is very Proust. He goes on for like hundreds of pages about like object permanence and stuff yeah. like that. <laughs> but that second one that I like, you know, the unknown element of other people's lives, I think uh, many, many books can be boiled down to that concept. Yeah, definitely. And it made me think of uh, of some some sort of song. <laughs> nice, the Smiths. Uh, so that's a little uh, little clue there. But the book I read this week is also about the music industry, uh, live and recorded music. Really? So. Such a strange combination of Proust and the and the music industry. So you've been in a few bands before. I know you know music mm-hmm. is a big part of your life. Otherwise, like, do you still play? Uh, still play the guitar? I still play the guitar, but I'm I'm now one of those old people where it's like my guitar is displayed in the corner of in my of my room as something that is cool to look at more than it is cool to be used at this point. Unfortunately, yeah. but. That's perfect for this this story. Uh, another question. I mean, you, what's the last concert you went to? Oh, some live music in here too. Um, 
Last concert I went to, I can't remember anything pre-quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> so I, w- I went to a concert, probably one of the last concerts in America. It was on March 11th, right before everything right, you was had canceled. Men- yeah. You had mentioned, yeah, Steve Hackett. Yeah, well, Wednesday night, and then Thursday, everything started shutting down. Mm-hmm. But anyways, uh, the book, this book I read is also a relatively new one, at least for my standards. Uh, mm-hmm. New as in... 10 years old, you know, uh, <laughs> Pulitzer winner as well from uh, 2011. Wow. So have you heard of this? It's uh, Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad. I have heard of this book. I like long, like a long time ago, long, long time ago, like one of my colleagues was reading this book and was like really obsessed with it. Yeah, it was very popular. And uh, yeah, it got a lot of, a lot of critical acclaim. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's centered around music. It's around the lives of people that are involved in music, and it's so it's set up like a like a partly a short story collection, partly a novel. You know, post 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 something, <laughs> post post modern or post, just modern. Post post post. Modern. Yeah, it's post, but essentially, it's kind of like James Joyce's like Dubliners. You know, in that it follows a branching set of characters around. Mm-hmm. Um, and it only really returns to what you would maybe consider the main two, which in this case is music industry executive Benny Salazar and his longtime assistant, Sasha. Okay. So it's definitely not a traditional narrative, um, but it's easy to follow once you get a few pages into each of the 13 chapters. So you kind of know, you have to like learn what, what time it is, what place it is, who's in focus and what relation they are to benny and sasha like interesting so yeah. there's yeah, yeah 13 chapters and you have to kind of figure it out in the first couple pages like what's going on you think of anything like that i think dubliners was the one that came to my mind like it's it's almost a short story collection but all the short stories are linked in the same universe and same some same characters yeah there's another novel that i have it's like a pretty modern novel called cannibals in love um that is like that where it's like nice. connected essays it's like essays that are semi-fictional and then like definitely like oh that's what he talked about in the other one but they can be read you know yeah alone. so i you actually gave me a copy of that book because yeah. you had you had two of them mm-hmm. and one of them was autographed because i think you have some you knew the person right yeah yeah i do. yeah i know the author of cannibals in love mike roberts i got the unautographed one uh, <laughs> But so, so the main theme here in this book that kind of carries on through all the chapters uh, and, you know, here, let me use another musical example. How did I get here? Uh, it's that A to B kind of thing. Like what, what went wrong or what went right and what, what the hell happened throughout all these years? Mm-hmm. You know, so pretty much every one of the large cast of characters here, you see them grow older, you know, losing or gaining the spark of whatever they once had or what they're after. Most of them, it's kind of a a, a melancholy kind of novel Mm -hmm. as far as how things go. But and, you know, it kind of works through that, through like the lens of rock and roll or music. You know, like our music isn't our parents' music. Our our kids' music won't be our music. Mm-hmm. Music's one of those things that reflects the passage of generations pretty well. 
Yes. Definitely. We kind of talked about that last week with like, you know, are there going to be any Elvis fans left in a hundred years or 50 years? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's, hard to re- yeah. <laughs> it's hard to really kind of uh, recount what happens in this book. Like the first, ch- first chapter got me really hooked because it's about Sasha and she kind of deals with like bouts of uh, kleptomania. Mm-hmm. So she's, like stealing things and the first the first uh uh the first chapter she's like at a she's on a date or something and she's so she's in the in the bathroom and this woman's purse is open and she just you know has that in, internal monologue she you know should i uh, gonna try not to do this and then thinking of what her therapist might say and the conversations they've had she ends up snagging this woman's wallet goes back out to her table and then this, you know, woman comes out freaking out and she ends up kind of feeling bad and, and struggling between trying to, you know, get out of there as fast as you can or try and, you know, when you're a kid and you do something wrong and you try to fix it secretly. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Yeah. I definitely know that. Yeah. That's it's what like she kind of goes up, through. Clean it up as best you can. And then your mom's like, what the hell is this? And you're like, hmm. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so she tries to, you know, I, I like, oh, I found it. I found it. You know, <laughs> I didn't steal it. I found it. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. Um, but that I got, I got hooked from that first chapter. It was, it was really, uh, and I, I was expecting it, you know, to continue on with her. And then it jumped to different, different characters, different places. You know, you go to Benny and he's this record executive who is like a has been kind of. <laughs> mm. Um, so he already had his big break or whatever. And then, and then you're learning about him and his family and, and all this other stuff. And then you go back in time to the seventies when Benny and a bunch of other people are in a, like a punk band in New York city in the seventies and they're playing shows where their fights breaking out and, and stuff like that. And there's a cool, cool mix in this book of talking about real music, real bands, real songs, mm-hmm. references to real bands but then also um they there are plot points built around these fake bands that you know she, that's part of the story and oh, that's really they're cool. trying they're trying to get signed or they're you know yeah i love stuff like that like touring weird. alongside yeah. yeah yeah alternate kind of things uh what's his name rabelais is really good at that like there's like a bunch of like fake books that he makes up and stuff yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's so good so um so yeah, that that's about as far as I can go into like what the story is really about. But it's all these kind of interlocking, interlocking things, and um, they do fit together well. You don't get confused, like I say. You just a few pages in, you know, you know where you are in the timeline, hmm. or in the, in the in the family tree, or or, or whatnot. But um, so one of the big things to talk about. So it's not a hundred years of solitude where you no. have to spend thirty-five <laughs> minutes figuring out who's who. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, one of the big things in this book is the 12th chapter. So the, uh, penultimate second to last, uh, which is one of the weirder format changes I've ever seen in a novel. Mm. And I think it was one of the things that the Pulitzer committee really liked about a visit from the goon squad. Mm -hmm. So in this chapter, and again, you know, by now that it will be covering some other character in the tree of Benny and Sasha, but you have to figure Mm -hmm. it out. Anyways, 
you flip a page to chapter 12 and then all of a sudden you got to hold the book differently. <laughs> hmm. it, t- it takes the form of a PowerPoint presentation for like 50 pages. Well, so suddenly you have to hold it like it's a calendar, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I and fl- then I keep flipping up. Yeah. Yeah. So you eventually find out, you know, you don't know what the fuck's going on. You find out that this presentation is put together by Sasha's 12 year old daughter, Allison. So you're mm-hmm. in some different timeline and, now you're involved with Allison's family who you don't really know anything about. But this presentation, PowerPoint presentation is called great rock and roll pauses. Hmm. And it's such a shock to see because it's trying to tell a larger story than great rock and roll pauses through generic kind of PowerPoint templates. You know, Mm -hmm. there's like flow charts and graphs (laughs) and text boxes and arrows and all the generic PowerPoint stuff you've ever seen, you know, but the words within all them are either talking about famous songs with pauses, you know, like, uh, when the beat drops for just a second or two seconds or a Mm -hmm. prolonged pause, that sort of thing, which is Allison, her brother Lincoln is obsessed with, um, you know, he just likes to listen to those pauses, you know, and, Mm -hmm he loops them together. So where a, a pause that would normally be two seconds long, he, he <laughs> modifies and loops it to like 11 minutes or that sort of thing. Wow. That's That sounds very, uh, post, post, post modern. Yeah, that sounds like yeah. something, I don't like something that would be in, um, uh, what's the, uh, white noise. Yeah. Sounds like yeah. Something that would be in white noise. So, so yeah, you're flipping through and then, the words and the graphs and, you know, she even graphs stuff. And, but what you're seeing is either about those famous songs with pauses or, you know, just also talking about clues into like the family's strained dynamic. Hmm. Like it'll be talking about how mom and dad argue a lot and stuff. Like it's, it's just very strange format and it's, it's a really interesting thing to read. But so let me, let me um, tell you, the list of specific songs that are mentioned as far as ones that have a good pause, you know, a second or two of silence before like a transition or something. Nice. Uh, So the ones that are mentioned a lot, long train running doobie brothers, Mm -hmm. faith by George Michael, young Americans, David Bowie, good times, bad times, Led Zeppelin Mm -hmm. time, the time of the season by the zombies (laughs) Roxanne by the police. Foxy Lady, Jimi Hendrix. Oh yeah, yeah. Was do you, can you think of any any songs with a good pause in them? Uh, I'm thinking there's there's definitely I think Spirit of the Radio Rush has like that one thing where it's like it like has a tonal shift and then like it just pauses for like a little tiny bit before he's like concert hall. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, I was I was thinking of uh, Sad but True by Metallica. Oh yeah. Like it builds that crescendo and the guy pauses. You know, it has like just a half second or one second. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, there's probably some epic bass drops in like just techno in general. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah all, like every dubstep song or yeah. whatnot. But anyways, you know, I believe the message there is that music is, you know, about the sounds as well as the pauses, you know, you, yeah. You need both. Common, common of, saying. You're not yeah. playing. You're not playing just the notes. Playing mm-hmm. the, the rests. Well, that's what you hear about jazz 
a lot, mm-hmm. right? That's the overdrawn kind of jazz. Like it's not the note, it's the notes that they're not playing. Mm-hmm. The space in between. Yeah. So you need them both. But um, but yeah, this this was an interesting read. I did enjoy it. Um and I can see why it got so much attention when it came out because it's very different. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I definitely is, remember the. I, I remember my because the colleague who was reading this back in the day was definitely sort of like obsessed with like oh middle aged and like aging and like all that like stuff like that. He would like talk about that stuff a lot. So I yeah. remember him like kind of connecting to to that part of the book. Yep. Yeah, that's a big uh, a big theme. So, as far as a one star review, there were a good amount of passionate ones to choose from, and here's why. <laughs> I think I think when you win the Pulitzer, that's a target on your back as oh, far as stuff right. like that. Yeah, because uh, most of the bad reviews mentioned the Pulitzer. They're like, yeah. "What? Are you kidding me?" Yeah, exactly. Um, I should be on the committee. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I found one that doesn't, so I'll, I'll read that one. Uh, Lisa says, no, 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 no. I hated this. The review doesn't even deserve capital letters. And by that, she means that she didn't use any capital letters in, in this whole review. What did I like about it? Nothing. Just no. Depressing. Boring. I can't see how people could like this. And the random PowerPoint part that went on for like 50 pages sucked so bad. This book makes me not want to live anymore. Not really, but it was upsetting how disappointing it was. I warn you all that is not that it is not recommended at all. And if you decide to read it, it's your own fault. Okay? Yes, I mean no. Minus a billion stars. Nice. Well, she didn't <laughs> like the PowerPoint. No. But she had to read, you know, 200 pages to get to the PowerPoint. Yeah. Exactly. Sure just dropped it. But yeah, so that's it. Uh, 2010's A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. Cool. All right. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports, Quarantine Edition. You can <laughs> find us once a week on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR the Podcast. You can also send us an email, sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Send us your comments, uh, reading lists, short stories, Uh, suggestions, anything, whatever you're feeling. See you next time. See ya.